Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Jonna Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Eve Cuny. Eve is the Director of Environmental Health and Safety at the University of the Pacific, Arthur A. Dugoni School of Dentistry, where she's also an Assistant Dean for Global Relations. She's been a guiding voice in dentistry through this pandemic, counseling a number of professional organizations, including the American Dental Association. Eve is a member of the National Occupational Research Agenda Council and has served as a subject matter expert for the CDC. She's also worked in the area of dental infection prevention and patient safety for the past 30 years and is currently a member of the board of directors of the Organization for Safety, Asepsis and Prevention, also known as OSAP. Thank you so much for being with us today, Eve. Well, thanks, Jonna, so much for having me. Absolutely. Can you first start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to your interest in healthcare and specifically dentistry and oral health? Well, when I first started college, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Well, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and I started down that path. And part of the education for teachers is spending time in the classroom. And although I loved children and I I liked teaching, I realized it just wasn't for me. And at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had a good friend that was working in dentistry as a dental assistant, and she really loved it. And I said, well, I'll try that for a while and and see how that goes. So I went to, you know, specialized school for that and started working in dental offices and really enjoyed it, was found dentistry interesting, fascinating, always something different to learn, something different to do. It was never just a job where, you know, you're just doing the same exact thing day in, day out, and you're interacting with people, which I also really liked. You get to know people, they come back on a regular basis, and you get to know their lives and their families. And so I thought about going into dentistry to go to dental school, and I didn't really want to do that either, but I did take a job at a dental school as a teaching assistant working in the pediatric clinic. So I got to do what I like, be with children, be close to people, and work in a team environment. And as I began working in the school, it was a time of a lot of change. It was in the mid-1980s. In 1985, I became very interested in infection control because of the emergence of the HIV pandemic at the time. And of course, being in San San Francisco as one of the centers. And as I became more interested in uh, infection control, I began working with our surgical tech from our surgery department, our oral pathologist and our oral medicine specialist really trying to be educated about infection control because there was no formal education for us back then if you were interested in infection prevention. So, you know, as just as the years went by, I continued my education. I took uh, courses in environmental health and safety at UC Berkeley. I received a degree in management and a graduate degree in health services administration because along the line, I realized a lot of what I'd like to do was policy development, um, administrative type of roles. And that's kind of where I find myself today. That's awesome. So one of the things that you mentioned, it sounds like you have worked with some type of interdisciplinary team in this infection control type of environment. And I'm curious how that plays out in oral health. You know, what does that look like when we talk about infection control? Because I'll tell you from my point of view, right, I'm a registered nurse, so I think about infection control in one very distinct way. But how does that show up in dentistry? How does that show up in oral health? 
And that is really interesting because the words infection control or infection prevention, they mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And in dentistry, it really means, or it has traditionally, I think that the definition of that term is changing in dentistry and COVID has something to do with that. And uh, traditionally it's meant just how do you prevent transmission from occurring at the point of care. How does a, a, a dentist or a dental hygienist or a dental assistant or a therapist, how do they prevent infectious agents from transferring to themselves and to patients or from patients to themselves? So very simple, very basic concept of infection prevention. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you touched on something. You talked about COVID. Obviously, it's affecting all of us in different ways, definitely in healthcare pretty heavily. So what are your thoughts on COVID and airborne transmission? How is that affecting now dental precautions and the experience for the patient who's going in for some type of dentistry service? COVID-19 has had a tremendous impact on, on dentistry and, and, as I said, on the way we even view infection prevention in dentistry. In dentistry, we've always focused on standard precautions, really looking at blood and body fluids and having contact with those either through non-intact skin, percutaneous injury, splashes to the mucous membranes of the eyes, nose, and mouth, but we never really addressed airborne precautions because traditionally the precautions that we would take would be if a patient had symptoms of an airborne transmissible disease, we would defer care. With COVID-19, you can't do that because some of the latest things that I've read said that it can be between 40 and 45% of people are asymptomatic. And there's pretty good evidence that asymptomatic persons can transmit the virus to other people through their breathing, through speaking, through the aerosols that they generate, you know, when those activities are going on. So in dentistry, we've had to completely flip and look at airborne precautions in the context of dental procedures, which most often do generate aerosols that contain oral fluids and respiratory fluids, along with other debris just from the performance of dental procedures. So using a dental handpiece, some people call it the drill, using the water scaling devices that dental hygienists use to clean your teeth, those create very fine sprays and mists, which can transport those oral fluids, which may include respiratory secretions for long distances. So a big concern in dentistry. Yeah. What was the process for that? You know, implementing those type of changes, saying like, hey, we got to think about something new and we got to put in some new precautions and ways of handling this. I was just at my dentist a couple of weeks ago and, you know, even the process was different of just checking in and having my temperature checked and the room looked different. The equipment looked different. And I felt secure in that way. I knew they had made some changes, but what's the process to say, all right, we're in a new grounds now. How do we go about making this change? It really required a major effort. And by the beginning of April of this year, the vast majority of dental offices were either not seeing patients at all or were extremely restricting the types of procedures that they would do to ensure they weren't generating excess aerosols. And during that time, those next couple of months was a huge time of learning for dentists and other dental professionals. And, you know, how, what are airborne precautions? Um, what does that entail? How do we implement some elements of that in these wide variety of settings, you know, dental care can take place in anything from a converted house to a large, almost hospital-like setting. Uh, so really looking at the diversity of the 
types of environments where dental care takes place also comes into play. Uh, having to look at ventilation, having to look at different types of PPE that we've never been used to wearing and everything that comes with that, the regulatory compliance piece that goes with that, the fit testing, the education and training of people and doing things a different way. And it's all compounded too by the fact that there were what I would consider some opportunistic companies and individuals that were out there trying to sell things to people that would potentially reduce the risk from aerosols that are generated in dentistry, but they didn't have the foundation in science and evidence to show that they actually worked for the application that they were being marketed for. So very difficult, very complex. But by June, most dentists and dental organizations had figured it out and had been able to come back in some capacity and start providing care because you know, patients need oral health care just like they need the rest of health care. Absolutely. And it sounds like a lot of work goes into having to make those changes. Do you feel like this is going to be something permanent now? Like, you know, that we've done all of this type of infection control changes in dentistry. Do you see this being at least a permanent kind of package just in case we need to, to call upon that again? What's that look like in dentistry? I really think some of the elements of the changes that we've made are going to be permanent and they're going to be incorporated into the sort of universal precautions that are taken in dentistry because, uh, as I said earlier, we've learned that we really cannot be complacent and take for granted that patients who enter our dental practices are going to be free of respiratory diseases. And with the fact that we're working in the oral cavity, which has a direct connection, obviously, to the respiratory tract, that's something to be concerned about with every single patient that you treat. So I would say the environment may be different. The standards for ventilation, for how the air is is moved through an office, for instance, you know, many offices didn't think about how the ventilation system should be placed. So you might have air that flows from a clinical area where patients are being treated. Maybe the air, you know, is coming into that area and then it's flowing out through a duct that's sitting over a receptionist desk, perhaps. So all of the aerosols and small particles that can travel for long distances can be carried on that airflow to areas where maybe people aren't protected. So I think ventilation plays a lot more into it than we realized in the very beginning and that it's going to be something that there will probably be some standards for in dentistry. And I also think some of the personal protective equipment, but also we've even changed the way and the sequence in which we put on and take off our PPE. You know, we, we would never have put on our mask and face shield or goggles before seating the patient. You bring the patient back, you sit them down, you have a little chat, you know, maybe take their blood pressure, update their health history. And then you go, you know, wash your hands and put on all your PPE. But now it all goes on before you bring the patient back into the treatment room so that you can be protected as soon as the patient takes their face covering off. So I think those are some of the things that I would anticipate would change permanently. And I also think maybe people might feel a little bit differently about having workers come to the job when they're not feeling well. There was always sort of this... I can do it. I'll work through it. You know, I may have a cough and a cold and a slight fever, but it's okay. You know, I'm coming to work and, and especially maybe in a smaller practice where it wasn't really easy to make up for a person being missing, you might even encourage that. And I think that's something else to think about is maintaining a, a healthy workplace. Part of that is people who are, are obviously knowingly ill need to stay home until they're well. 
Yeah, you brought up a ton of good points just now. The ventilation, I never even thought about that. To be completely honest, I've never even thought about that and how that plays a role. And the PPE and the coming to work sick for sure. Now I, I see that in places, you know, people show up somewhere and this is true in nursing. They show up and like there's a cough or a sneeze and everyone's like, go home, you know, like that, that, that immediate feeling. But it does put an emphasis on how we need to be really conscious about that and that now here we are in this kind of heightened state of infection, right? And we don't want that to happen. We don't want that to be transmitted. The PPE point, we, we have all heard about the PPE issues of just trying to source PPE for our frontline healthcare workers, the doctors and the nurses and EMS, right? Our paramedics that are out there in the fields. And that seems to be those are the first people that are going to get those PPE. And I'm wondering, how does that affect then dentistry and the fact that, you know, you're still seeing patients and that you're still working? What was that like trying to source PPE? It was definitely a challenge. And I, I have to be honest, I think it was maybe less of a challenge for us as a larger institution. You know, we have probably closer ties and connections directly with manufacturers that individual dental practices or smaller groups may not have the benefit of. So I know that it was especially difficult in the office-based settings for them to source things like respirators, N95 respirators. And, and I think that one of the other issues that arose with the PPE was that some people, because they were fearful of running out, they may have had enough, but they still implemented optimization strategies, you know, reuse or extended use or reprocessing of things that were intended for single use without also adopting the things that should go along with that, such as limiting the number of people in your facility, limiting the types of procedures that you do, you know, these contingency and crisis standards that were in play are really not meant for routine practice of healthcare. It's meant for these crisis and contingency situations, and especially with reuse of respirators, you know, not consistent with standards of care and only for these emergency situations. So it was a hard thing to watch, to be honest with you. You know, as I was home between middle of March and June when we resumed providing care, just watching the news and seeing what these frontline healthcare workers were going through, especially the ones actively treating patients that were infected with COVID-19. Yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. What about at your university? So University of the Pacific, how are COVID concerns being addressed amongst the students and the faculty there? What's what's that process look like? We tried really hard to start from the very beginning and being sure that we were as open and transparent as possible about administratively what kind of decisions were being made, where were we getting this information. You know, a lot of people would come to us and say, why aren't you doing X? And we, we needed to have an answer for that. If we were not going to take on one type of preventive measure, why did we not select that one? And of course, in prevention, it's all layered, right? You don't just do one thing. You pick the strategies that combined you feel are going to provide the safest environment possible, both for your patients and also for your community, you know, the students and the staff and the faculty. And so, you know, we tried to communicate that very carefully. We have a crisis management team and we have met every 
day since March 16th when the city of San Francisco decided that we needed to shelter in place and they were closing most businesses and we didn't close completely, but we did close to everything except emergency care. And so we would meet every day and we would talk about, you know, what were the new health orders coming out? What did we need to do? How are we going to source PPE? All of the myriad things that you have to consider in a large institution like this where our normal patient load is more than 500 patients a day. So it's a big operation. And then our dean would send out, and still does, has sent out a daily message every day since that that day of shelter in place in March 16th. Although, you know, our students are back for patient care, we're still not back for any academic or in-person instruction, but healthcare is an essential service that we are allowed to provide in San Francisco, which is still locked down pretty tight compared to some other parts of the country. We also had many, many open forums where, you know, we'd have big Zoom meetings where everybody's invited, or we do a class at a time, or we do the faculty and the staff. We'd present them information, train them on whatever the latest was in terms of our own protocols and procedures, have time for Q&A, did an FAQ website, you know, so I think communication was really key in making people feel like it was safe when it was time to come back and that we were thinking about them while they were gone. Yeah, I love that because I think that in a time like this, when there's a lack of communication, it adds to the fear, right? And it adds to misinformation. So the fact that they, you know, daily notices and messages are going out, it's better just to keep the you know finger on the pulse to make sure that people are still staying connected and staying informed. What do you think, especially because it sounds like at the university, you're communicating this really well, and the changes that have been implemented sound like they've been done very well. Based off of this experience, professionally and personally, what do you feel like this COVID experience has revealed about our healthcare system in the U.S. Do we miss steps? Like, are there things we can do to strengthen that, to make that better if we find ourselves on this scenario again? Yeah, that's a big, big question. Um, and it's a very complex one, too, because um, I try not to only follow what's going on in dentistry, but I try to follow as much as I can what's going on in healthcare in general by getting reports from different sources that synthesize the literature so I can look at that. And there's also reports that talk about what's going on in hospitals and the financial impact that this has had on hospitals, um, especially rural hospitals, but even city hospitals. You know, you're probably aware that there's been quite a few hospitals that have basically shut down um, because their bread and butter elective surgeries haven't been happening and they didn't have the margin needed to protect themselves from financial ruin, basically. And then, of course, in the rural hospitals, the uh, impact on underserved populations we know is has been greater than it has been in the more urban areas where there's denser populations and more access to hospitals. And I know that those hospitals too, you know, have been suffering. In terms of dentistry, you know, it definitely has had a financial impact, but I think in some ways it's really interesting because I feel like there's been a renewed interest, I think, or an increase in interest um, in the crossover between medicine and, and dentistry and dentistry becoming more integrated into the health of individuals, not just their oral health. And I think one of the indicators of that are things such as an interest among dentists in doing rapid point of care testing for COVID-19, you know, because there is some advantage and there are recommendations to do testing of patients before they undergo aerosol generating procedures, which are the highest risk. 
because then if a person is asymptomatically infected and you can pick up on that, you can delay the procedure for a while. But also there's an interest in being able to give the vaccine when it becomes available because more people go to the dentist regularly than go to the doctor regularly. So you can reach a greater segment of the population. And in fact, just this week, the Oregon legislature passed a rule that will allow dentists to administer vaccines, which currently is not in the scope of practice for dentists in most states. And that's a huge workforce that would, you know, with proper training, be able to help fast track some of the vaccines that we're going to be needing as they become available. And of course, there's there's other areas too, not related to COVID-19. The, the use of saliva as oral diagnostic, it can already be used to detect HIV using an oral swab. There's also oral swabs that can be used to detect SARS-CoV-2. And there's other oral diagnostics that can help identify patients who have underlying conditions that can then be referred to their primary care provider for further evaluation and care. So I think that in some ways this has sparked that interest a little bit more among people who were already thinking about it and maybe got more dentists thinking about it as something that's a reality that is coming soon. I don't think that this is something that's really far down the road. Yeah, that's interesting because I know that for pharmacists right now, they're able to start to administer different vaccines that they weren't able to do and doing these different health screenings that they weren't able to do before within their scope. And now that we're seeing that branch out into different levels and different members of the healthcare team, it's really becoming an interesting point, not just for COVID, but I think about you know, if we're starting to kind of stretch our arms in different directions within what our roles are, for me, I hope that means that we'll become better connected, right? Like, I'd love to be better connected to dentistry and nursing and and medical and dentistry and all of those things. We talk so much about a multidisciplinary team, interdisciplinary team, but sometimes it feels like we're really disconnected. And fortunately or unfortunately, it ends up being opportunities like this that come from crisis that have really helped us to expand and exercise our roles in different ways. Yeah, I think that's very true. And and it's not being done in a forced sort of false way where, well, we need interprofessional education and we need interprofessional activities. So here, this is something that we can do. No, there's a real advantage here to being able to cross some lines and have dentistry step in to what would maybe have been traditionally a medical professional's role and help with that. And then I think that it can go the other way as well. And I know that there's a lot of work going on in, in many, many quarters regarding this interprofessional interaction and collaboration. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we're a teaching company, right? And we love to fill knowledge gaps. So I'm wondering if there's any topic that you would like to educate us on that you think everyone ought to know. And this is really interesting for me because as a nurse, oral health comes up in a lot of different ways. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on what you think we should know about that. In oral health in general, and something that I think that is really interesting, not related to COVID-19, is the oral microbiome, because the oral microbiome is the most complex besides the gut. And there's a lot of things that they're learning can be done with genomics by looking at the 
oral microbiome may be identifying early on predispositions for certain types of health conditions, for instance, so that you can have earlier interventions. And I know there's companies now that are developing potential tests or kits that could be delivered in a dental care setting where the dentist performs the test, provides the analysis, and then that can provide information to the primary care provider regarding, oh, you know, this person has a predisposition, say it's to high blood pressure. Let's implement some non-pharmacological, non-invasive types of interventions now that may help them avoid those types of interventions in the future and live a healthier life. So I think that's super interesting. I think in the area of COVID-19, the area that I think is the most interesting is there was actually the proceedings of a workshop that was released, I think it was just earlier this week, by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And it was discussing the airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and the implication of aerosols. And one of the things they talked about is that there's been this disconnect between what the infection preventionists determine is um, a particle size that would constitute an airborne disease. So, you know, traditionally in infection prevention, you say anything under five microns is an airborne particle and anything over five microns is a droplet. So a droplet, of course, doesn't travel as far, falls to the ground, not as implicated in respiratory transmission. But airborne engineers and scientists that look at aerosols say, no, actually, an airborne organism is 100 microns or less. Some say 60, some say 30, but they all say an order of magnitude, at least over that five. And so that has huge implications in the way that we try to manage airborne diseases, because we're saying, oh, as long as you can keep one meter of distance between another person, you won't be exposed to their droplets. Um, And that may be true, but it may not be true for somebody, if you're talking about 100 micron or or smaller particles being airborne, that means that the particles that a person breathes or when they speak can easily transmit farther than originally thought. And these are the top experts in the fields that have been doing this kind of work for, for many, many years that are saying we really need to change the way from an infection prevention standpoint, not from an aerosol scientist standpoint, because they're already looking at it, but we really need to change the way that we look at and classify airborne diseases. That's really interesting. I'm going to look that up. (laughs) That's good stuff. (laughs) And, you know, one thing that I would love to hear from you, we have a lot of students in our audience and a lot of early career health professionals. What would be your piece of advice to give to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and approaching their career in healthcare. I think if anything, this moment that we're going through, I think it's taught us that the importance of being flexible, being willing to challenge some of your traditional thoughts on the way that things are, and also I think of critical importance is the ability to understand scientific knowledge, be able to look at the scientific literature, read it critically, evaluate it, and then understand how it fits into the care of patients and your clinical experience. Because a lot of people get frustrated when they see things changing. You know, oh, well, you said we weren't supposed to wear masks and now we're supposed to wear masks. You know, which is it? Well, you know, scientific discovery is a process. 
And during that process, you have to be ready and willing to say, okay, that was true then, but something else has added to our knowledge that's changed the way we look at this, and therefore, we need to change. We're never going to stay the same. Medicine and healthcare are, are not static. Uh, they have to evolve. They have to, because it's always an imperative to provide a healthier life for people. And to do that, you have to be willing to change and be flexible. You have to be able to think critically, evaluate the science, and also be able to separate it from opinion. That's awesome. I'm going to use that line, that process. <laughs> Thinking about it in that way really does help you to wrap your mind around that it's okay that things change and it's, it's changing because we need it to, to be better. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, E, for being here, for joining me today. This has been awesome. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm Jana Emil. Thanks to everybody for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.